Welcome to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, also known as the URM Jam, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. On this podcast, we will address the real and perceived barriers faced by historically underrepresented in medicine students and residents who are considering a career in academic family medicine. We'll provide practical tips and personal advice on topics like leadership, scholarly activity, CVs, mentorship, and more. I'm Dr. Omari Hodge. And I'm Dr. Tochi Iroku Malise. And this is URM Jam. Hello, everyone. I'm Omari Hodge. And today we have a special guest, Dr. John Delzell, who's going to be talking today about the importance of scholarly activities. Dr. John Delzell is a DIO at the Northeast Georgia Hospital System in their graduate medical education program, including compliance and all subspecialties. He's also responsible for the institutional requirements of the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medication. Dr. Delzell has more than 20 years of experience leading and mentoring faculty and residents across the country. Before coming to Northeast Georgia, Dr. Delzell served as DIO for the Broward Health System in Fort Lauderdale. He's also served as the Associate Dean for GME at FIU, Herbert Wortham College of Medicine, and held leadership positions at the University of Kansas, the University of Tennessee, the University of Missouri, and Columbia. Dr. Delzell is married to Heidi Chumley. She's a nationally recognized academy family physician who also works in medical school leadership. Dr. Delzell and Chumley are avid runners. The couple has one grown child who lives in Texas, two in college in Missouri and Florida, and two who still live at home in Gainesville. The family also includes a bulldog, a bengal cat, a turtle, a ball python snake, two fish, and a frog. Welcome, Dr. John Delzell. We appreciate having you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Welcome, uh, Dr. Delzell. It seems your family life is very interesting, and we'll talk offline about your, the pet situation you have at home. But our first question for you today is this. Can you tell us a little bit about your own path towards scholarship in academic medicine? Sure. So, um, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I think I was really lucky that I had some great mentors. Um, I went to medical school at the University of Missouri in Columbia, and I also did my family medicine residency there. And uh, we had a faculty there named Dan Vinson, who, uh, you know, was a really well-known, recognized uh, researcher and, you know, had some big grants. And, you know, he was the kind of guy that you could just sit and ask questions. And I just remember as a, as a resident talking to him and about research and, and scholarship. And, you know, one of the things he said was, you know, you can teach a monkey how to do research, but you can't teach him how to ask the right question. And that stuck with me for a long time because it, it really struck me that being curious and, and having questions was, was the key. Um, so I, you know, I got a lot of encouragement from my faculty. I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really going to to med school or residency to be an academic. I I had planned. I grew up in in rural Missouri, and I planned to go back and be a a rural family doc in in Southwest Missouri. That was that was what I I thought I was going to do. But I got really interested in in the teaching and scholarly activities that were part of our program. And, and that really got me going. So I, I had a, a crazy question in, uh, in the time when, when I was uh, on the newborn nursery. And that was actually, I asked that question and I, nobody knew the answer. And so the, and the question was just, do we teach about back to sleep in the nursery? And so I got a lot of encouragement from the, the other people in, in the faculty, the people that were my, my mentors. And they said, Hey, why don't, 
why don't you like do a study on that? And that was the first time I thought, oh, here I was, I think I was probably early in my second year of residency. And, and I was like, oh, so I could ask a question. And I, at that time, I really thought, I mean, we had some of these big, you know, big studies going on in our department, like the radius trial and things like that. So I thought like, you know, if you want to do research, you had to ask like this really big, important question and get somebody to to fund it. But but what I figured out was, hey, you know what? I have a question and I could do something to answer that. And that was really the start. I, I think that, you know, that encouragement that I got from those faculty really got me going. I just want to clarify for our, the younger generation out there that, that may be listening to this, that back to sleep, what, just could you just for them to understand that about SIDS and et cetera. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I, it is kind of crazy to think there was a there was a time back in the day, as we like to say, you know, where it, <laughs> That's wasn't, our day. Really, <laughs> it wasn't really that that recognized that, you know, it was probably safer for babies to sleep on their back, you know, so there were a lot of uh, a lot of places in the nursery. If you had a spitty baby or a fussy baby, you, the nurses would put them on their belly or or, you know, we taught people to do that. And and so this idea of, well, maybe people, you know, babies, families, parents should be making sure that their babies are on their back. That was really not taught so much at that point. What was interesting, I haven't even really thought about this study in, in years, so <laughs> I couldn't tell you the details of, uh, but I do remember we found out that there were a lot of the nurseries. We, we actually surveyed all of the newborn nurseries in the hospitals around the state. And what we found was that there were a lot of nurseries that weren't really teaching back to sleep, even though it was a, it was a federal program that was out there and was, was recognized. That's, that's awesome. I like how it was just organic too. You know, Dr. Louise Jones, who for our organization is the officer in charge of um, scholarship and helping all the residents get all the scholarly activities and faculty as well. But one of the things she says that I hear you saying is that it should just be natural. It shouldn't be something that you really don't have a heart for or necessarily care about, but it's just a simple question that pops up inside of you that you want to see the answer to. So that's that's awesome. But let me dive into a second question since we have you. I wanted to know if you could help explain to our audience the importance of scholarly activities, and particularly as it pertains to having a career in academic medicine. Many times people are interested in it, but don't understand the value and role that's being involved in scholarly activities can have with your career. Yeah, you know, the, the ACGME has had a, a wavering course on scholarly activity over the years, I would say. There was a time in the ACGME that they felt like some programs should do scholarly activity, and it's like the universities, and maybe other programs, it's not such a big deal. Uh, but I think what's happened over the last 15 or or so years is that that really all of the RCs has come to the consensus that scholarly activity needs to be a part of of every program and you know it doesn't mean that you need to have you know, funded researchers in your program, but it does mean that you need to have a, a group of people that are are asking questions and and doing some uh, some sort of research. That could be you know presentations, it can be quality, it can be lots of of different things. But that that should be part of the core attributes of of a faculty member. And and I think what the importance of that is that if I've been in academics places. I've been in community places, I've been in public hospitals. And what what you see is that the physicians who maintain a a really inquisitive view of medicine are better. And and I think, you know, the the danger is if you if you are only as good as you as you were the day you finished training, you uh you end up eventually not being a very good doctor. And Agreed. I think Agreed. I, 
Yeah, you know, and it's it's hard for people to accept that. I think the you think about those sort of older physicians that are still practicing the way they did 25 years ago, uh, but you don't have to be older. I mean, you could be uh, you could be 10 years out if you haven't changed. There's a lot of stuff that changes every every year. So I I think the importance of it is really having a uh, an approach that emphasizes um, a a scholarly mind and an inquisitive mind in your in your training programs, whether that's for med students or or residents. If you if you want to be an academic. If you want to be a faculty in a in a program or in a department, you need to you need to adopt that to make your program as strong as it can be. And and one of the things that's interesting, you know, we're we're actually in our institution here, we're we're a brand new sponsoring institution, a community hospital, um, a big community hospital. We're a tertiary care center, but very few of our physicians in our organization did any any scholarship. Nobody had publications, nobody had papers, or, you know, most of them had not done a presentation or anything like that for years. So getting them them to change and sort of approach things differently has been one of our, our biggest challenges, but it's what the expectation is to have a, a residency program. Even if you're in a community environment, that's really what um, what the RC expects. And so th- thanks for saying that. And then just again, that for those who are out there that may not understand RC, just the residency review committee, every specialty has theirs and they're the ones that ki- help with the, what the criteria are for a residency program, d- just depending on your specialty. So the family medicine RRC are the ones that help to develop our requirements and, and scholarship is part of it. Um, so you you're, you started to lean into what I'm going to ask you next, and that's about the fear and other barriers that uh, prevent some of our physicians out there from participating in certain scholarly activities and how they can overcome that mindset. And I'm just going to just reference that there was like a, a, about a decade ago, there was a, a, re, a paper in academic medicine where they mentioned that there were four types of, re, of uh, scholarly activity. You could do d- discovery, which is research. Integration is connecting various um, uh, discoveries together. There's application where you take what you know and put it into practice and you research that. And then there's teaching, which is what we, all of us do here, right? So uh, can you speak to just the fear and barriers and, and that prevent them and what they should be doing to overcome them? I think it's a great thing to think about. I go back to Dr. Vinson saying, ask a question. John Ely did this study way back like in the in the 80s or 90s and where he looked at all the questions that family docs ask in clinic every day. And if you're seeing patients, if you don't have 10 questions in your mind by the end of a of a clinic session, you're like, you're a little mind numb, I think, or something. Because mm-hmm. every time I'm seeing patients, I think of a question. I'm like, well, you know, why are we doing that? Or, or what, you know, what's the right way to do this? Or, you know, all those things that just come up in your regular clinical practice. To me, that's, that shouldn't be fearful to us. That That's really like the driver for us. We want to be, you know, we want to be better doctors. And those, those questions are the things that can drive us to be a better doctor. I, I think what I see with our faculty is that a lot of times people, and, and this is not specific to family medicine. I mean, we, we've got emergency medicine, we've got psychiatry, we've got OB, we've got general surgery, internal medicine. What what we find is that that sort of, oh, I haven't done it for a long time, mm-hmm. or I don't know how to do it. That is a really common sort of 
almost excuse. So, but but I think what you're saying underneath it, Doji, is that they're 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 scared of it. They, it's the unknown. So, what we've tried to do in our in our setting is put some resources behind that. So, uh, having a person that will help them figure out well what's the best best way to answer that question so maybe the best way is to to do a, a literature review first or you know maybe you need to go to the library because somebody has already studied it you don't really need to do a study you just need exactly. to, find the, right. to exactly. find the data on it um, but sometimes it's you know like hey maybe we need to do a survey or or we, maybe we need to get into uh, epic and look and see how many of our diabetic patients have that i think having that resource really helps a lot with that fear in our faculty and the other thing is a little bit of humbleness really goes a long ways i mean i think the residents are scared too cuz they they generally even though they don't ever admit it but they don't really know a lot either so at least a lot of them don't so they you know they go and I think a lot of times the faculty think, oh, well, the resident's going to expect me to know everything. And if you sort of get that out of the way and encourage people to just go and say, okay, well, we're not really sure what, we got this great question, but we're really not sure what to do, you know, and go to your resources and and ask them. I think that helps a lot with that, that fear. That's a huge point because, you know, one of the things that I try to do with my residents early on when I have them and setting the stage, especially for the interns coming on is, I remove that that gap that they perceive is there where I'm on the other side and I know everything and they're on the other near and they're on one side and they know nothing. And I let them know, no, there's going to be many times I don't know the answer. And you know what the funny thing is, is that with residents, the, these are very smart kids, you know, and they can really tell if you're just making things sound good, but you don't know what you're talking about versus you're just saying, correct. you know, <laughs> versus just saying, I don't know, you know, and it's okay because I'm still on this side. And you're Thank over there and I can help you get here. I'm going to, I'm just going to throw this in there. I, I, I always say to them, if you come to me with something as some fact that you found out, either I will learn something new and I will now teach this to the next class, or you will learn something new and realize that that information was incorrect. Either way, somebody's learning something today. That's and right. That's, that's, that's way, right. That's the humility. You have to have that humility. You have to, yeah. especially yeah. with it's, medicine. It's super today. important because, because most of the time, you know, it was a, it was a step for them to get to asking you the question, you know, right. So supporting that, I think with that, with that humility is really helpful. Yeah. Let's, so let's go down that street a little bit further. And since we're talking about the residents and students, as they're along this path, some of them are, uh, you know, we have a lot of medical students who come and rotate at our hospital and we have residents from interns all the way up to season third year. I am residents who are about to go off and flourish. What can they be doing immediately to help prepare them or get involved in the process? In other words, what do they need to be thinking? If I'm a medical student, what should I be thinking about? If I know scholarly activity is important, how can I position myself to make sure that I'm able to do it? And if I'm a resident and I'm working all these hours and I feel like <laughs> I feel like th- these 50 hour work weeks, we can talk about that later, <laughs> that, that I'm having are stressing me out. How, how do I find time to, to, to do research? <laughs> it really doesn't matter how many hours you work. It always, okay. They always think they're working too many. That's, yeah, they do. That's, my that's true. Well, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things that I've seen, so we, so we built this, this um, thing called core, which is 
um, a, a common set of didactics that all of our residents go through, um, whether they're in family medicine or whatever, they, they all go through it. And, um, and we put research and scholarship into that because what we, what we found was that everybody as a, as a new resident, everyone thinks they know about asking, uh, developing a research question or study design or those kind of, uh, um, even things like simple, like evidence-based medicine, that kind of stuff. They all think they know it. Um, but but usually what we find is that everybody has a, a lot lower level of, of knowledge than they really think they do. So I think one of the things, especially as a student, you get so caught up in really working through shelf exams and, and just yeah. acquisition of knowledge base that you forget some of the stuff that you did learn along the way that was really more about uh, research design, study design, you know, all that kind of yeah. thing that, that you learned, but then you're kind of like, oh, well, it's not the dose for this medication. So I've sort of dropped it into the, um, into the, the back of my brain. So I think, you know, one thing is, is being okay with saying, okay, well, I got to learn, I got to relearn some of this stuff um, and really dig into it. And then particularly as a resident, one of the things that we've found is really, really helpful is just saying flat out from day one, hey, this is a requirement. You know, I don't care what program you're in. I don't care what you plan to do with your life. You've got to do every one of our residents has to do a scholarly project and it has to do a quality project. And if you <laughs> if you have that expectation, then it's like, oh, well, you, it's kind of like your kids. They, they might still argue with you a little bit, but in the end, you're still going to the same place. Right. Right. You know, also we're, we're in the midst of it. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Oh, I was going to say that I, I I agree with your concept of having making it a requirement because we do that at our site. I remember when I, I when I was program director, that was a requirement. Everybody had to do it, uh, faculty included, and uh, we put them in teams to do projects yeah. together. So that way, you had a faculty in third year, second year, first year, and then when I became chair. Same thing, requirement was across all the five residency programs, and that was an important thing. What ad one additional step we made was that we created, um, you have, we have selectives and uh, that the medical students can do where research is, scholarly activity is part of it. Mm -hmm. And we also have electives that residents can do if they wanted to go above and beyond what we normally do. So we've scheduled two week electives, four week electives, and even tracks 12 weeks where they, over the course of the last two years of their residency, that they can uh, get involved in that. So residents and students, I'm gonna say that they should just uh, be, if you're curious, just ask, say, can I make my elective? Can I have a selective in, in, in research and scholarly activity? Yeah, you know, it's so so important to get opportunities for them to to work with someone else. Um, you know, you, your energy for for scholarship ebbs and flows. And so if you if you get partners that really can help you a lot, if you're on the ICU, your um, your partner's not, um, it really helps you to be able to continue to um, move things forward. And what, what we've found with, with the partnerships between the faculty and the residents is the residents will pull the faculty along um, often. So, you know, absolutely. It, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, faculty, they don't like, faculty don't like to look like they're, you know, they're slacking, right? That's right. So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, that's true. Another thing that, and you guys have already alluded to it, as we're going through another application cycle, and I'm looking through all these applicants, you know, and we see medical students who have already done some form of research, that's really impressive to me because that's uh, obviously their lives are very busy already, but to take the initiative to sometimes they even publish things or have posters and um, can talk about these projects that they were already passionate about, you know, they're bringing that energy to the residency program. So it immediately makes their candidacy a little bit more attractive. So um, yeah, that's I think, awesome. 
my only caveat on that is I think the stuff that they do that's clinical is far more valuable. I mean, you often see sure. people that like worked in a lab and, and oh, does, yeah, yeah, yeah. did something that was, you know, I'm sure important to somebody, but, but as far as, you know, when they got to the residency level, maybe wasn't as applicable to clinical medicine, uh, more basic science. And I think, you know, that other part's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but particularly when they get to thinking about, you know, residency, I love to see it when they, if they've worked on a quality project or they've worked on something that's more of a clinical project. Okay. Well, that was great. I want to leave it with you and see if you have some last points that are listeners can take away to kind of help reinforce everything we've been talking about so far? Well, I I would say three things, and I've kind of touched on all of these as we've been talking, but I think the first and most important thing is to to ask questions. If you're not curious, if you're not inquisitive, you'll you'll really struggle in this area. So I think asking questions about about the patients that you're seeing is really key. Um, I think the second thing is is you got to find a mentor. You got to find somebody who will encourage you and will teach you. And you know, for me, I had lots of those along over the years that really helped me to kind of keep moving along in my career. And those mentors don't have to be in your in your specialty, but they can be somebody that you know, somebody that has similar interests to you is really part of it. Somebody that you can ask questions of and get advice from, and that's super important for if you want to advance as an academic. And then the last thing I would say is that. You know, don't don't get discouraged. Uh, I think uh, people feel like they got to be published in New England Journal for it to matter. And it's like I'm pretty sure I'm never going to have a publication. <laughs> so, <laughs> the number of rejection letters we could all show, right? right? No, I know. So you know, don't use that as your as your bar. Start you know, start where you're at, and and then you know, over time, you know, you grow your your scholarship. And, you know, the the first step is often poster or a presentation at SCFM or a specialty meeting or, you know, I mean, there's so many, so many places you can do that. So don't, don't get discouraged. And one little tidbit I wanted to let our listeners know about is that you were really instrumental in our organization at leading our recent presentation, a town hall presentation on black men in white coats, that we really had a chance to talk with our hospital about some issues that um, black men face when they're in medicine. And also um, you helped host um, the Hispanic Heritage Month um, that we recently did. So I really wanted to uh, acknowledge and appreciate your efforts um, for what you're doing in our hospital with underrepresented minority groups. Thank you. Appreciate that. You know, one of the things that we, I put a high value on is making sure that our faculty are diverse and have diverse interests and diverse backgrounds, because that's who our residents are. And that's who our residents, we want our residents to be. And so they need to see people that look like them that will encourage them and be their mentors. That's, that's great. That's, that's, that's what we're hoping others will do as well. So thank you for doing that. Dr. Hodge. Thanks for joining us for another episode of URM Jam with our host for today, Dr. John Delzell. I'm Omari Hodge. And I'm Dr. Tochi Rukumaliz. And I also want to say a big, big thank you to Dr. Delzell for being here. Thank you so much. I, this has been great. Uh, it was very not pain, painful at all. So anybody <laughs> out there that's thinking about that gets asked. Yes. Yes. Recruit. Here, uh, they, this was uh, a We're wonderful. We're friendly. You're very nice. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast providers. 
as well as on our website at stfm.org slash urnjam. Follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. 